This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd, and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. Mark Ramir Antoine was born in the Republic of Haiti in the Caribbean Sea, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. But he grew up in the USA, one of the richest countries in the world. It's a journey many families before his have made in search of a better life, but not quite as many choose to make that journey in the opposite direction. Yet at the age of 27, that's exactly what Marc Antoine did. Partly in response to the devastating earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010, and partly as a desire to reconnect with his roots, he joined the Christian development organisation Tearfund, where he worked as an intern. He rose through the ranks and today he is Tearfund's country director in Haiti. And in this episode, Marc Antoine shares some of this story with me and reflects on the efforts of different NGOs to help bring people in Haiti out of poverty. And in particular, he tells me about two things that he believes are crucial to helping poorer communities to prosper. The first of these is business. It responds to problems, it creates opportunities for innovation, and it puts money in the pockets of people. And that is the most sustainable way to get people out of poverty. And the second is this. The organization who's been here before NGOs and will be here after NGOs and whose mandate it is to serve is the church. So we're calling this episode Haiti, Enterprise and the Church. And I should say, before I pressed record on my interview with Marc Antoine, we had a brief conversation about one of my favourite subjects, other than building community, which is American basketball and my love of underdogs. So you might notice that being referenced during the course of this episode. But let's get into the interview now. And I began by asking Marc Antoine, what makes him proud to be from Haiti? Yeah, that's. I think that's a really both a simple and a challenging question. <laughs> um, I think, you know, whenever you're born somewhere and, you know, you kind of have that, you know, your family background, your heritage, your ethnicity, and, and you're growing up in the culture, um, you, you, you begin to appreciate it. And I think, you know, growing up outside of Haiti, you even have more of a yearning to connect with it because you're away from it. And so growing up in Philadelphia... We, I grew up in a Haitian community and we were always, you know, trying, you know, to hold on to our Haitianness. Um, and, I, and I think most of it is attributed, you know, to our parents. They really put into us a sense of, you know, we're we come from somewhere. You know, we're from Haiti. We have our culture. We have our background. We have our history. And it's, you know, a very proud history. You know, Haiti's the first um, black republic. Um, the first country, I mean, the only country to ever have a successful slave revolt where we, de- you know, defeated the the French and declared freedom in 1804. Mm. 
Um, and so, you know, all of those things really gave us a sense of pride. And, and again, you know, we were talking earlier about basketball, how, you know, you kind of like the underdog and Haiti is often, you know, the underdog, unfortunately, since 1804, not much, um, has been done, um, to be proud of. We've had a lot of, you know, uh, trouble, you know, with, with politics, long history of dictatorship, long history of corruption, disaster after disaster, um, natural disasters, uh, um, I should say. Um, and so growing up, there wasn't much, you know, um, to make one proud. Um, but understanding that this was our heritage, understanding that, you know, our people, um, you know, were just kind of dealt bad cards. Um, and, you know, seeing the resilience of my people really made me proud to be Haitian, even in the midst of a lot of trouble and, you know, problems in our country. How old were you when you moved back there? I was 27 years old. Mm. And what what was it that pulled you back or, or pushed you back? Um, to be honest with you, it was um, primarily, you know, the calling of God. Um, I really felt a strong calling in my faith in, in God to really go back to Haiti. To, to be very frank, it's <laughs> while a lot of Haitian Americans love Haiti, it is not the dream or the blueprint to move back to Haiti. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, our parents are always saying, hey, we moved out of Haiti for a reason. Um, and, you know, growing up in America um, and being educated in America, there are so many opportunities that are available, um, you know, career wise. I mean, America, I mean, you know, growing up in the Western world, there's so many things, that, you know, at your fingertips. So it's not really it, it was never my plan to go back to Haiti. I think after the earthquake in 2010, um, that began a spark um, when I visited Haiti and I realized that, you know, I could I could have more of a real impact in the country. And then really through, um, you know, just my faith and growing in my faith. And I, I began to to understand that taking the example of of of, of, of Jesus, him coming to Earth and being present. In order for me to have the change that I wanted to have in my country, I needed to be present in Haiti. And I couldn't do what I wanted to do from afar. So all of those things really, you know, pushed me and propelled me to say, hey, even though I'm giving up a lot by leaving the States, I, I, I really believe that there is hope for Haiti and I, I, I want to participate in that transformation. Um, and I, pre presence in a place is a really important idea. And we'll, yeah. we'll, I'll ask you about that a bit more. But so you, you went back to Haiti after the earthquake. Is that right? Yeah. I, well, growing up, I would, you know, our family would visit Haiti um, mm. in the summer. After the earthquake, I, um, I, I went to Haiti to do some mission work. And, but I didn't stay. And then I, I went again in 2011, went again in 2012. And, you know, I, I started going year after year. Um, but I moved back full time in 2015 and i would imagine in a country like haiti particularly after the earthquake there would have been a lot of ngo activity um and um perhaps some kind of investment in in the place i think you you joined as a, an intern with tier fund is that right that is correct um i i joined as a tier as a tier fund intern in 2015 actually um, it was the uh, last part of my grad school program. 
And uh, I was able to land an internship there for four months. And that's how I that's how I originally went to Haiti. I bought a one way ticket <laughs> um, and spent four months there. And at the end of the internship, uh, the director at the time asked me to ask me if I would stay on full time. And I said, yes. And that's how I stayed. <laughs> Just tell me about what you what you saw in terms of NGO activity there, maybe within Tierfund, but maybe outside, because I've heard you talk about in, in other podcasts and interviews, I've heard you talk about how um, sometimes the traditional NGOs might come in with good intentions, but they 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 can often have the opposite effect. Um, yeah. And you favor a more sort of a focus on local enterprise. And then also um, you got involved with Tear Fund, which is a church-based organization and works through local churches as opposed to more secular organizations. I wonder if you could just tell me a bit about why it is you favor or you chose to invest your time with the this more kind of entrepreneurial focus and this more um, local church-based focus as well. I guess there's two components there. Pick pick either one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, both of those are really, really important. I think um, to your first point, the traditional work of NGOs. When you when we go to these countries, I mean, all throughout the world, whether it's in Asia, Africa, or the Americas, we look at the work NGOs have been doing for generations. And I, you know, specifically, I look in Haiti, and the question I when I went back to Haiti is, where is the impact? with all the money that's been invested, where are the lives that have been changed? Um, and, and, you know, the answer I usually get is, you know, I, you know, yeah, you know, I can show you a few people, but I'm saying, Hey, you know, we've been, NGOs have been pumping in millions and billions of dollars into Haiti. Um, you would think that you would see a more systemic, uh, solution to problems. You would think that you would see, um, you know, more communities, and, um, you know, families who have, you know, have really had their lives changed. But unfortunately, you haven't. Um, and the reason is a lot of the time is, you know, the way that we do aid, the way that we, you know, respond to the needs of people is really through models that perpetuate poverty rather than eliminate poverty. Um, and, you know, the lingo in, you know, the NGO world, a lot of times is poverty alleviation um, but the lingo that I like to use is poverty elimination. Um, we don't want to make poverty palatable. We don't want to make, you know, we don't want to help people cope with it. We want to get people out of poverty. We want to have people released from poverty, um, living to their God-given potential. And so what I realize is that, you know, the best way to do that is to stop giving handouts and to really empower people to be the responses and, and to be the change that they that they can be in their own communities. And the biggest way to do that is to help people start businesses. Businesses are the best way to get people out of poverty because it, it employs people. It creates opportunities, you know, for innovation. It responds to problems and it, and it puts money in the pockets of people. And that is the most sustainable way. Um, to get people out of poverty. Of course, there are other things, systemic things that need to happen to complement what businesses do. But I, I think with a focus on employment, with a focus on entrepreneurship, we can really begin to see 
holistic change in the lives of, of, of people. So that's what we've really been trying to focus on. It's what we call enterprise-led development. Development in communities through a lens of enterprise um, and identifying people in communities who can start small businesses, but also identifying people in communities who can have, you know, a medium-sized businesses and maybe helping them scale up where they can employ people. Um, and, and by doing that, create systems of employment, of innovation, where people can get out of uh, out of poverty. And so that was really, you know, what I saw going back to Haiti. I saw a lot of handouts from a lot of different organizations. I saw a lot of um, interventions um, that helped out in the short term, but didn't do much help in the medium to long term. And when you only help out in the short term, um, you create dependency. And there is a culture of dependency in Haiti. And it's a culture that does not empower. It's a culture that perpetuates systems of, of poverty and injustice. And I think through enterprise-led development, we can change that. Um, and coming into your second question, why the church? Why, why work through the local church? The local church is, is, is powerful in, in the fact that it is the most local you can get. I mean, the local church is a system of local people who are there to serve the community. Um, the mandate of the church in a very natural, basic sense, the church is there to serve. And whether or not someone subscribes to the Christian faith, the idea of the church in communities is that the church would serve the community. And, and so really the first organization who can support and whose mandate it is to serve and the organization who will outlast all NGOs who's been here before NGOs and will be here after NGOs is the church. Mm. Um, and so we said, hey, if we can partner with the local church who has been here way before us, who understands the community much better than we do, whose mandate it is already to serve the community. It's not something that we need to, you know, to force them to do. It's not something that we need to teach them to do. It's not something that they need to get paid to do, particularly, you know, it's something that it's already part of their remit. What better way to reach communities through the local church? And if we can support them, empower them, give them the skills and the resources they need, we really believe that we can have sustainable um, systems in communities that will outlast Tear Fund and every other NGO. Hmm. Um, and so that's really the idea. It's building up local capacity. It's localization of, of aid. Um, and it's reaching people in the most, you know, these churches are in areas where NGOs can't go. Um, and so we have access to communities where it's not safe for us, where, you know, we may not be welcomed. Um, and so it's really giving us you know, insights and access to every community, even in the most vulnerable places, and particularly in the most vulnerable places. I'd li I'd like to drill into your your work then with enterprise and with churches, but but firstly, just going back to what you're talking about the traditional way of NGOs working and how it sometimes works in the short term, but not the medium or the long term. Would you have conversations with people who are part of these NGOs? And do you think they're aware of, of that 
uh, reality or is is it like there's a quote from a guy I think he's an American called Upton Sinclair which is says something along the lines of it's very hard to make somebody understand something when their um their career or their pay packet depends on them not understanding it yeah. would you would you do you think that's the case um with with these tr- this kind of traditional way of ngos working uh, yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I, I think, um, you know, changing the way we work requires, you know, relearning. It requires, you know, giving up, you know, what you believe to be the right way <laughs> and, you know, giving up years of, of practice. And mm. So it, it, it does require a lot of a lot of humility. Ten years ago, I, I would say that maybe people were not aware that their helping was hurting but I think over the past 10 years, there's been so much work and so much research, so many evaluations done that prove some of the ways we work are not helping and actually they're hurting communities. And so I say at this point, most NGOs are aware that certain interventions hurt. Um, certain interventions help in the short term, but are not really sustainable and, and not, are not durable. And so I think most NGOs are aware. Uh, I think what happens after, you know, what should come after awareness is acceptance. And I think that's where the, you know, the, the, the rubber meets the road. Um, where, where many people may be aware, they still may not be willing to accept. It does require a leap of faith. It does require giving over, um, you know, some, some autonomy to communities. For example, if I could just give you a quick example, um, a lot of NGOs are now moving you know, over the past five to 10 years or so, we've been moving towards cash-based programming um, because we realize instead of giving or doing in-kind interventions, which means if we're doing some type of agricultural intervention, a lot of times we would go out, buy the seeds and do a seed distribution for families. Well, what we've been realizing is that if we give the cash to families rather than buying the seeds, and giving it to them, it allows the family more autonomy over what they buy. It, it gives them less of a sense of handout and more of a sense of responsibility because now they're responsible for how they use the money. And it, it, it provides more of a dignity to the families. Um, but then it also gives them the flexibility to say, okay, if the organization was going to buy me 1,000 Haitian goods, which is about equivalent of $10, um, of worth of seeds, but actually I only needed about $5 worth of seeds and I needed the other $5 to pay this expense, you know, for my child, they can do that. And it, it gives them the autonomy um, to do that. What that means is organizations have to then trust in the families to make the right decisions, you know, the decisions that will be right for them, um, which from a programming standpoint can be difficult. Because it, it kind of blurs the lines, you know, with what your objectives and what your results are. But it's, you know, very simple things like that where in the long term, this, you know, may be best for families. But actually, you know, in, in the short term, it may be harder to measure agricultural impacts that way. And so, you know, these are kind of the discussions, you know, that we're having. But I do think organizations are aware. I think, you know, the, the biggest issue is around acceptance. Mm. 
And it, it, I think you, you you mentioned there about results and this way of working that puts more trust in people and gives them control, I guess, is naturally going to mean that the results or the outcomes are more are more diverse and more difficult to measure. Would that be the case? Yes. Um, now, again, to go on this example, what we usually do after these cash interventions um, is we do post-distribution assessments and we go to the families and we say, hey, you know, how did you use this cash? Um, and they say, yeah, we use 50 percent of it on, on buying uh, food for our family. We use 30 percent on buying seeds and we've planted those seeds. We use 10 percent on, you know, medical fees and then we use another 10 percent on school fees. Um, and what it does is it shows us what the preference of the beneficiary was which is important. A lot of times we were finding that we were doing interventions and the, that was not the preference of the beneficiaries. And, you know, the cash really allows the, the beneficiaries to say, hey, I have autonomy over how I use this best for my family. Um, and it's understanding that people will use the money. And if, if we get our targeting right, if we are really targeting the families who are most in need, if we are really targeting the families who are most vulnerable, they will use the money in ways that are most beneficial for their families. They are not going to waste the money. Um, and that's what studies show. That's what we found. And we think that even though it may mean changing our objectives and changing how we word our results, it's worth it. Mm. Could you tell me a bit about this waste management um, project you've been involved with? Because you talk about that as a well, the picture you're painting so far is, is is a sort of holistic image of of what good development work can do. And I know that this waste management project or pilot, from what I've heard of, sounds like a, a really holistic thing as well. Would you just introduce that to us? Yes. Um, so for anyone who's been to Haiti or maybe seen pictures um, of Haiti, especially if you're watching mainstream media, you see Haiti is often depicted as a very... Um, how can I say this, a uh, place with a lot of waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, in many, many areas is, is, is true. We do not have good waste management systems. The government, according to most studies, can only collect about 20% of the waste that is produced in the metropolitan area of Port-au-Prince. And there are, you know, private companies, but again, most families can't pay a private company to pick up their waste. And so what happens is a lot of families pay local informal waste collectors. Now, these waste collectors go and pick up the waste from the families that's produced in the home. But because there are not many ways and not many places to discard of the waste, that waste is either thrown into rivers um, or thrown somewhere else at a point, you know, in the community that has been informally chosen as the dump site for waste. And this waste is either burned or the waste is, you know, as we said, thrown into the river, and then the river leads into the oceans and seas. And so obviously, you know, this has a lot of different effects and problems in communities. The open burning has a lot of negative health impacts um, as it releases a lot of gases that people are inhaling, very detrimental um, to, to, to people. Um, but also our waterways, um, when you put them into the rivers, it has impacts on marine life. And a lot of that marine life, um, Haitian people are, are taking to eat. And again, it comes back and has detrimental impacts on on people and on animals. And then thirdly, 
the waste that's not discarded of that's thrown into the streets clogs canals. Um, and so when it rains, it causes floods. And when there are heavy rains, especially in hurricane season, it's very detrimental. And we, I mean, we've seen whole houses flooded because the, the water canals are clogged with waste. A lot of the waste is plastic waste, organic waste, um, and, and all the residual things like metals and things like that. So that was in, in one of the areas where we work, um, Carful, we, you know, it's, it's an area that doesn't have private companies and the, the local authorities there are very inconsistent in their waste collection. And we found two young guys who are taking plastic waste, um, which has become an increasing issue in Haiti, um, and they were recycling it and turning it into book bags. In, into what? Into what? Sorry. Um, book bags. Okay, so that's a very American <laughs> lingo. <laughs> uh, back, backpacks. Okay, backpacks. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they're turning it into backpacks. So taking the plastic waste from the street mm. and, and producing beautiful backpacks. And we saw that and we were like, wow, this is, one, it's you know responding to the issue of plastic waste in the street. Two, it's employing people to sew and to produce these backpacks. Three, it's keeping money in Haiti because what happens is there are some organizations and companies who collect waste, mm. plastic waste, but then they ship it abroad. And that plastic waste is then recycled, which is benefiting another country. Whereas this company, you know, they're, they're keeping the plastic waste in Haiti and recycling it in Haiti and producing secondary products with it keeping the can, money in country. Can you just briefly describe what they do? Like, are they, are they, are they sewing or are they melting it down and reformatting it or, or what? Yeah, so they take um, the plastic. We, we use a lot of plastic water sachets in Haiti. Mm. Um, and they take them, they, you know, they go through a cleaning process and then they melt them down. They have um, several machines that they use to melt them and to, to put them together. And then they sew them. They have, you know, uh, different materials as well. Some foam materials, some cloth materials that they sew together with this plastic. Um, and I can send you some pictures of, of what they look like. And, and they create these wonderful book bags, um, backpacks um, with it. Um, and so there's an entire process. We have different videos on that process. I can share that with you as well. Mm. Um, and you can see how it goes from, you know, from A to Z. From, you know, the picking up in the street to the washing and cleaning um, to the melting down to the sewing um, and then to adding on all the different pieces that make the backpack. You know, they've been doing a wonderful job and it's been so successful that they even before Tierfund came along, they were selling backpacks to different organizations, different NGOs. They were even selling backpacks to the government. Most of the backpacks in Haiti are, you know, from abroad. Um, which is another issue about industries in Haiti. A lot of what we get is from abroad. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is one industry that you know, is homemade. And so when we saw that, we were like, this is definitely something we want to encourage and support, you know, in response to the issue of environment and in response to the issue of economics. Um, and Tier Fund, one of our corporate priorities is environmental and economic sustainability, mm -hmm. which looks at how we can respond to the issue of the environment in a way, you know, that is saving money, but also in a way that is making money um, where, where, you know, our, the, the economics of it um, and of people are improved. Um, and so really it's creating green jobs. And so we said, hey, you know, we would like to support you in what we're doing. And so we went along 
We learned about what they were doing. We decided to give them some capacity building training, um, training on project management, training on on finances, you know, just really helping their their business, um, you know, improve on on the management side and technical side. We helped them with some training on uh, waste management. And then we said, hey, you guys are already collecting waste. Why not become a waste collection company? Um, You're already collecting waste. And so we helped them scale up. And so over the past year and a half, they've been doing a very small pilot um, where they train families on recycling. And then they go and they've given each family a trash bin um, that has a compartment for organic waste, a compartment for plastic waste, and a compartment for miscellaneous. And then every week they go to these families, they collect the waste from them. Um, And the idea is that with the organic waste, they'll transform that into compost. And Haiti, you know, is agricultural country, and so compost is always a big need. And then with the plastic waste, they're using it for their book bags, but they're also using it um, for paving tiles. And they've we've um, alongside Waste Aid UK, we've we found a way to turn these plastic bottles and plastic sachets into paving tiles. Um, And and for those who visited Haiti, you will also know that a lot of the roads in Haiti are not paved. Um, And this responds to another development issue. And yeah, so that's what we've been helping them do over the past year and a half. And now we we have an opportunity to scale that up even more. And we're really excited um, over these next three years to be helping them. And hopefully by the end of these three years, we, you know, will have helped them to really establish a strong enterprise. They've employed people already and looking at increasing employment, creating a social business that responds to issues in, in, in the community in regards to health, in regards to the environment, and also in regards to employment of young people. And so it really is a triple win, a really holistic uh, response to poverty in Haiti. Did the um, Haitian government know about this project? Do they have any sort of um, anything to say, any involvement in it? Yeah, we, um, this company has really good relationships with the local mayor's office. They are aware of what's going on. They've, um, you know, supported them and, you know, different aspects of the project. So, yeah, they are aware and they are supportive. Unfortunately, there, there are not many resources uh, to go around. Um, but we're, yeah, we're, we, we continue to, to build relationships with them. And the government has purchased, you know, backpacks from them and different products. And we're going to look to build on that relationship. It's really interesting that a faith-based NGO is, I guess, effectively almost being a business consultant and, and helping get behind these these entrepreneurs and, and supporting what they do. Um, I wonder if this links in to the idea of integral mission. Now, because this is a term I've heard quite a lot um, in, in our network here at Eureka Network, but also elsewhere... And I've heard you talk about it. Would you would you explain what you mean by integral mission? Yes, for sure. And, and integral mission is at the very heart of what we do at Tier Fund. It's the foundation of all our work. Traditionally, the the church has really been focused on proselytizing, on evangelizing, on preaching, which as as a church is is part of the role um, and part of the mandate. Um, we do have a mandate to to go out and preach. However, there's a, a second part of the mandate that the church 
often misses. And this part of the mandate requires not just a declaration, but a demonstration of the gospel. It requires action. It requires actually doing something, responding to the needs. And so the, the, the mandate of the church is, is, is to both proclaim, um, but to also demonstrate. And it's this demonstration that has been lacking. And so when we say integral mission of the church, what we're saying is that the mission of our church is to respond to the holistic needs of humanity, not just spiritual needs. Um, we recognize that humanity, we're not just spiritual beings, that we don't only live in a spiritual world, but people have needs, real life practical needs, whether it be food, whether it be protection, um, whether it be resilience from disasters, what have you. People have practical needs and the church is mandate is to respond to those practical needs. And so the integral mission of the church is to do both, to declare the good news, but also to demonstrate the good news. And that's what we've we've seen the church lack. And that's what we help churches really understand. And part of what we do at our work is envision churches, really help them to understand that they should be doing both, not just speaking, but really acting out in communities, doing advocacy, influencing communities, responding to the practical needs of people as well. So that is, in a nutshell, what Integral Mission mission is. Well, so so it's not just saving souls, but it's like that um, line from the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven, um, exactly. I guess. Yeah. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's, it, it's, exactly what, it's manifesting God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. Um, and manifesting God's kingdom is not just a spiritual act, um, but it's really a, a, a reconciliation of all things and the environment is part of it. Hmm. Um, you know, justice is part of it. Equality is, is part of it. All of these things, all of these, you know, uh, things, it, when God created the world, we're in perfect harmony. You know, how do we restore those things? How do we bring justice to things that are broken? Um, it's really responding to the brokenness of, of the world um, in, in several ways. So, yeah. That was the voice of Mark Antoine Ramir, who is country director of Tear Fund in Haiti. And that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will remind you that you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network. And Aruka is spelt A-R-U-K-A-H. You can also help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. You can learn more about us on our website. Just visit arukanetwork.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email, jake at arukanetwork.org. I would love to hear from you. But that's it for this episode. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>